Ricky Ricky Bobby. Ricky Dicky Tabby. Ready? Shoot your shot, champ. I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes. A show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse in the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. kind of an interesting show here today, Daniel. It's almost a three-parter. Uh, hopefully it's not uh, long enough that it's going to scare everyone off, but uh, we cover a lot of different topics uh, and we decided to break it up, but uh, the overall theme is that this is kind of a million-mile view of uh, the academic institutions around the United States and to a lesser extent around the world. We have a lot of friends, family, loved ones who are involved in the education systems in the U.S., either as teachers, as professors, as students, as grad students, and watching that field sort of devolve over the past few years, but especially accelerated under the the oppressive hand of coronavirus and the economic realities of these institutions has been especially distressing. So while we've had topics about academia in terms of research, in terms of the, the actual structure of schools, et cetera, on the back burner for forever, and they're still there, these super deep dives, which we'll get to eventually, we thought it would be a good opportunity and a chance to kind of do a, a, a wide overview of some of these topics that we found most pertinent mm. to these things right now. Well, let me, let me break it down in terms of the show flow for today, uh, David. This kind of whole episode was just kind of spontaneous, if you will. I was checking in. Super cool. Yeah. Uh, I had a phone call to check in with friend of the podcast, Mariah King, who's been on a couple episodes in the past, and she's a grad student right now. So just asking her what was going on at, at school in this pandemic world that we're living in. And I thought, you know what? Hey, let's just record this because it's pretty interesting. And so that we have... um a 30-minute or so totally unstructured interview, just kind of hearing from her about her experience in, in university right now. And then that kind of prompted us to look into some things, David. Mm -hmm. So after that interview, which we're going to play shortly, um, I want to read from a Wendell Berry essay. One of our favorites. We love Wendell Berry here. If we don't have a like a show ready, like if we don't have some research, it's like, all right, let me just let me just find a Wendell Berry essay real quick. He'll tell us everything we need to know. Yeah, there we go. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that, and I think you're gonna you've prepared a little history on some university stuff for us that might give us some insight into why universities are the way they are. Well, I don't I don't want to sound as dramatic as that, but it's definitely a small part of this huge puzzle. Uh, building this disastrous tapestry that we have of the academic institutions today, but but an important one and and definitely a horrifying one, which is you know what we like on this show. So, all right, well I look forward to that once we get there. For now, um, let's play the interview and we'll check back in in a little while. So I'm sitting here with Mariah. She is a PhD student. And she's going to be talking with us today a little bit about what's going on in universities. So, Mariah, thanks for joining the show. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. I've been thinking about these things a lot. I remember when 
um, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the pandemic, whatever, however you want to call it. I remember when it first started in March, I was in the middle of conducting field research. And because I was conducting official research sponsored by the university, I felt like I experienced so much in terms of how the university was trying to manage and cope with, you know, what it means to not be able to do anything in person and also how to protect itself from lawsuits, from bad publicity. And now leading up to this second semester, after just a, a lot of uncertainty this summer, it just, it's, it's been very thought provoking. So as a grad student, do you feel like, how are grad students impacted by this? Because you mentioned field research. So I'm guessing that for you, part of your research involves going out to different places, interacting with people. Can you still do what you're trying to do given the current pandemic? Well, the answer is no. The nature of our educational system at all levels, whether it's higher ed or whether it's, you know, um, like primary school and primary school education is very uneven. It depends on the state, you know, and what the state, the state's mandates. And then it depends on the particular school or the university and how they are working to, you know, protect themselves, protect uh, their communities. I mean, most universities that do research or that are research focused, you know, have an internal review board, the IRB. When you want to do research for anything, no matter what the discipline is or what the, the, you know, whether the research is in person or it's, you know, conducted online, you have to submit an application, basically letting the university know what research you're doing kind of on their behalf or with their name because they have to approve it. And if they they basically, you know, they have a team of professors and lawyers and things that look over your application to determine if you're going to be opening the university up to any risk. And so to your aunt, to your question, I say it depends. But from my understanding, my university is not allowing any currently allowing any travel, uh, university sponsored travel, and it's not allowing any university sponsored in-person research or in, in if if if. The, my university is allowing it. It's a case by case basis, which I think is it should be that way. But I think you asked me several questions, several big questions at once. The first question you asked me is like, what is it like for graduate students right now? And again, I would say it depends on where you're at, you know, in the program. Are you an incoming graduate student that has its own set of problems, a full set of problems? Are you an early stage graduate student? If so, are you a doctoral student? Are you a master's student? Um, but I would say one thing that's maybe common to all of us is just what does education, what does re academic research, what does it look like during this time and what will it look like moving forward? Because we're constantly thinking, especially in the early stages, about research that's coming up. And it's very difficult to think about that when, you know, not just with COVID, but also a lot of the other things that are going on in this country. I mean, it's just so much, but I guess one thing is, you know, what does your research look like? Which then prompts you to think about, you know, is it worth it? Or, you know, it does make you think about engagement and complicity in certain types of knowledge production, right? Who gets to produce knowledge about certain things and how you do it? Like, is there a particular field of research that universities right now might value more than others that like some research is going to get the green light 
versus other research that we you oh know. yeah of course i mean there's a politics to it all i mean so i mean again of course it depends so like if you're in the sciences depending on what type of science you do if it's lab based it is easier to approve that type of research because you have more control over um you know who can who has access to the lab how often the spacing i mean lab work is very structured, so it's easy then to restructure it. For social science research or research involving like, quote, you know, human subjects, I hate to say it that way, but that involve human subjects, it is much more, it's, it's much more complicated in addition to what the priorities are in terms of, you know, grant funding. So when everything back in March, we, there was a lot of grant, micro grants and grants that were created to fund pandemic related, which is good, you know, pandemic related research, um, anything related to how people were coping, the social ramifications, you know, uh, social inequalities that the pandemic exacerbated, that was, and I think even continues to be a funding priority, which to, in, in my opinion is a good thing. I think that, you know, it can be difficult for people to do the necessary work during this time. Professors or like even good meaning folks if they don't have the funding to do so. So there's a politics to it. Yeah. But my issue, if I can just go off of the question, my issue is not with the research and the funding as it is the actual practical day-to-day stress at all levels of being a part of our education, our being the American education system which just has a lot of work that needs to be done and has had, you know, a lot of work that has needed to be done and crises and, and this pandemic has really more than exposed, but has left this as an urgent and open question. I realized from talking to my own family members who are educators that A, this is a big issue and B, not everyone is experiencing this. Like if you don't have any connections right now to the education system, or or even if you do, you maybe only have limited experience with what's going on and what it really means, you know, for the future. So I wanted to just kind of ping people and not necessarily alert them, but just bring forth these questions and these these circumstances that are just very, that are quite stressful. Like what, what specific things are being exposed and like what questions in your mind are like really brought to the surface right now? I mean, it seems so basic, but it's very complex. It's it's what does education look like in all senses of, in this country, in all sense of the words. I'm thinking at what does education look like at the higher ed, at the university level? What shape does education take at the level of primary school education, which includes public schools, charter schools, homeschooling, private tutors, boarding schools, which folks don't talk about that much. Also, I'm thinking about assessment. I'm thinking at, at all levels, again, learn how learning, how we require students to demonstrate learning. I'm thinking about um, student debt, how students, you know, maintain themselves in school at, at all, again, at the level of being an undergraduate or being a graduate school student. I'm also thinking about, and I'm just saying all these like rapid fire. I'm also thinking about what this looks like for teachers and again, all types of teachers, not just the full-time teachers, but paraprofessionals, special education teachers, um, teachers who teach specifically arts. Again, I don't think that people understand 
the effects of all these changes and when we see these effects. I mean, I'm a child of two educators, primary school educators. And when there's big shifts like this in curriculum or in methods of teaching, A, it's all is inherently uneven just due to all the choices that American parents have. I would like to actually ironically plug the Nice White Parents podcast show because it's very, honestly, it's very frustrating to listen to, but it's a very real reality about the power of the wealthy white upper middle class slash perhaps upper class just the, the power that they have in decision making and in changing the the landscape for folks. So that was a very long winded, but I just this is just it's just been really bothering me. So that's a lot of questions. One aspect of this in my mind. So we did, you know, I don't know if you heard it, but we did an episode on universities, episode seventy five, business school, and kind of just looking at how universities in America, but also like the UK have have changed in the incentive structures and, and like what they're competing for and how, you know, maybe at one time in society, uh, universities were seen as like a public good. It wasn't seen as like a return on investment strategy. It was like, we, you know, we should offer these places for people to become educated and explore diverse topics. And the more people who do that, it'll ha- it'll be a net gain for society because who knows what new ideas will be will come up but it kind of shifted to this we need to um you know at a, at a high level we need a return on the investment that's going in to build these universities but also universities themselves became like part of this very competitive landscape where they're all instead of supported by like a broad national effort to just raise education in this country they were kind of left on their own to compete for funds and what that meant was the best way to attract students would be the promise of a good paying job, which means re-centering curriculum on how it applies to corporate workforce, and then investing in certain amenities like food and um, sports and like tangible amenities that students might enjoy so that those universities can get the tuition money. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, to answer this, the first thing that I'm not an expert on any on education um, policy shifts, changes by any means. I just, you know, like to reach into my experiences and the experiences of my family. However, I have I'm uh, I read broadly and I have three books off the top. Well, two books and or I guess I should just say three scholars, all black women that have have been doing really great work on this at all levels. So the first book I want to plug, she focuses on, she did a deep um, analysis on private um, universities, for-profit universities, and it just, it, it's mind-blowing. Um, and we're look, these are the universities where students leave with like 100, 100K in debt, and they're not, I mean, you go to their websites and they're very clear in their marketing about really what you're getting is, you know, an experience. You're not really getting an education, but you'll leave with a hundred K in debt. Her her book looks at, I think, online schools as well. And she continues to do this research. What book is that? So the, her book, she's an amazing scholar. What's her name? Her name is Tressie, Tressie McMillan Cottom. Mm-hmm. Tressie McMillan Cottom. 
And her book is Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Mm. She wrote this book in uh, 2017, and it was based on years of research that she conducted. She is in, um, in her doctoral journey for a dissertation. She's a sociologist and she is just a very prolific writer and she does a lot of public scholarship and she talks um, about education a lot. So I highly recommend that book for looking into just a general changes in the landscape at the higher ed level, but also a, a deep analysis and a very, it's a great read. I don't know if she goes into this in the book. I haven't read it, but one of the aspects of like predatory for-profit colleges, isn't it that they kind of prey on low-income communities yes. where it's like, she goes this into is the that promise of, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, you're in a tough situation. It's almost like the lottery, right? It's like, you could be, you know, with this education, you could be, have a great job. You well, could rise it, out of the situation. I would situation. like to say this, I had to plug it because it really, it really preys on, on low-income folks, not just in the in the hero narrative or the you could make it American dream narrative, but also in in academia, knowledge is really power. What you don't know will hurt you. Mm. When you don't know that you'd be better off going to a public university, or even if you did have to, you didn't get a scholarship and you had to take out loans, it still wouldn't be probably more than um, compared to what these books. Um, I mean, I, I just want to plug this so much she parses out the dynamics of the big money of the big money industry that is for-profit colleges to show precisely how it is part and parcel of the growing inequality plaguing the country today she looks at the shrewd recruitment and marketing strategies that these schools deploy and explains how despite the well-documented predatory practices of some and the campus closings of others, ending for-profit colleges won't end the vulnerabilities that made them the fastest growing sector of higher education mm. at the turn of the 21st century. So I want to plug that book. That's one. Consider it plugged. That's one. Please. Like, it's an accessible read. Do the reading. Another one. This is at the, I believe she did, mid, yeah, this is at the middle school level. She just wrote this book. She is a black, I've got to keep going. So <laughs> I just want, you know, big surprise. I got a. I got a university person up here giving us homework, but y'all heard it. She said, do your reading. <laughs> do, do your re I mean, we use that phrase a lot, but folks don't be doing their readings. They just like to say they be doing their reading. They like to tell the teacher they well, did it and they ain't do it. What I like to do is find a good book and just read the introduction and then go on the show and be like, so this is a great book. Uh, hits a lot of really important points. Um, and then like make it seem like I read the whole book. All right. Wait, we got to read the whole book. We got to understand what the arguments are so we can get an understanding. Um, so I had to plug her. I met her. She is amazing. And she just. What's her name? I, I met her when she was uh, right in the process of writing this book or finishing up this book. And she just published it last November. I'm going to tell you. Name? I'm going to tell you. Hold your horses. I know you're excited. <laughs> Her name is, so she's a, um, I want to give her her intro before I plug her name. You almost gave she the name. Is, she's a black feminist anthropologist. Her name is Savannah Shangay. Uh, she is an abolitionist. She's done a lot of great work at the middle school level looking at. Um, middle school. Mm -hmm. So her book is called um, Progressive Dystopia, Abolition, Anti-Blackness and Schooling in San Francisco. Published last year, she looks at the, you know, liberalism, neoliberalism, the rhetoric of diversity in the wake of 
police brutality calls for abolition. And obviously, with what's been going on this year, this book has become more and more relevant as the unevenness of learning remotely at the primary and middle school level is just almost unfathomable. So in Georgia, a lot of the schools are just opening back up. And my brother and sister-in-law were like, well, we're not going to send our kids to a school that's like fully open. But then it was like, well, we can't have these like our six-year-olds and like 10-year-old like on a computer screen eight hours a day. That doesn't make much sense either. It seems like a nightmare trying to educate a middle schooler as a parent trying to decide like, do you send your kid to the school and then risk their health and your health? Or do you try to do something at home, but now you got to work and like, how do you manage that? And this is really complex, right? Because on the one hand, school shouldn't be open. But again, when we look at the teachers, their wages, the ways that they have been, their labor has been not recognized in the way that it should be for the past 30, 40 years, it becomes a more difficult and complicated notion not to keep the schools open because public funding, I'm I'm talking about public, I should say I'm mostly referring to public schools here. I'm not talking about private schools or charter schools that that's, they have their own funding and their own, you know, their, their own politics of relation to the educational landscape. But I'm talking about public schools because a lot, what has come up a lot is about budget cuts. Well, we don't have the money. We haven't been given a budget from the state or, you know, or the county that can continue to fund or pay all these teachers. But it's just so I, I'll, I'll get in that. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But I want to finish um, plugging her book. Oh, plug it. What's the book name? I already told you it. It's Progressive Dystopia, Abolition, yeah. Anti-Blackness and Schooling in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm going to just read two sentence description about it so you all can get a sense of what she's looking at and what she's thinking about and what she's trying to convey and share. Um, in this book, she explores the potential for reconciling the school's marginalization of Black students with its sincere pursuit of multiracial uplift and solidarity. Drawing on ethnographic fieldwork and six years of experience teaching at the school, Shanghai outlines how the school fails its students in the community because it operates within a space predicated on anti-Blackness. Seeing San Francisco as a social laboratory for how Black communities survive the end of their worlds, Shanghai argues for abolition over revolution or progressive reform as the needed path toward Black freedom. Mm. I, I just want to plug that book. It's a can't recommend it enough. The introduction alone will have you shaking in a good way in the sense of um, it's a lot to digest and process. She really thinks with France Fanon and Audre Lord and other recent scholars in Black Studies. Can you speak up a little bit? Yes, sorry. I just <laughs> got really reflected. Okay, the other one, I just want to plug these before we keep going because they are the ones that have been doing this work. Actually, you guys covered her book last week, which is The Golden Gulag. But before she wrote, or as part of the, before she wrote The Golden Gulag, or as part of that, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore actually did a lot of scholarship on education, higher education in California, in the University of California system, which is actually very directly related to the prison military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. it's quite scary, to be honest. I remember, I'm going to go off for a second. I remember when at the beginning of this summer, when um, the protests against the murder of George Floyd were 
getting media visibility, it came out, it was starting to come out, at least in my circles, about the complicity of the university system in providing, quote unquote, formal education for policing. You know, so there's like, you know, criminal, quote unquote, those criminal justice degrees and their relationship to the academy was coming out a lot. So that, I don't know if I can dig what, into that. What, what do you mean? Like, uh, basically that the universities were, were working in tandem with local cops to provide these degrees for cops. I mean, that's what it was like criminal justice degrees were located within different disciplines within sociology. There's a, there's a strong connection there, which most folks know, but also an English department because it was profitable. Right. It was profitable to have these professional degrees, you know, these end of the line professional criminal justice degrees. Was it like racial profiling 101? I have no idea. I have no idea. But a lot of universities were being called to account for we want an explanation and we want you to end it. And I remember one, I think it was, ooh, I don't want to misquote. So I, I can't, I actually can't say which the university, which university was. I think it was one, but I'm not sure. So I don't want to say it. But I remember there's one university specific that really got caught, you know, um, a student. It it was uh, a student actually decided to speak up about it. They got caught just like making it super easy for cops to get this criminal justice. Being really complicit, like creating curriculums for the training of cops. Oh, I see. But basically like extending, you know, their academy training into the university extending it not just extending it but legitimizing it Mm. you know we know that education has historically and continues to play a huge role in the legitimacy of certain types so when you think of sorry i had to say this is related when you think about the jim crow laws Mm -hmm. columbia university was very complicit in solidifying the um legitimacy of, of of those laws with their academic well, that's so interesting to me. I, I didn't hear about that. But oh, yeah. But you hear about like the liberal argument, you know, liberals in the Democratic Party sense of the word and in, in the United States, like when all this police brutality happens, there's a lot of them who are just like, well, this is why we need to invest in training for police officers. You know, this is why they don't get they don't get paid enough. So they're not attracting like smart people. They're just attracting like trigger happy high schoolers who couldn't hack it, you know, so they're but then this is like a direct counter to that which is that training police officers is really like you're saying just legitimizing the practices they're doing when that training is is not actually serving to dismantle the white supremacy at the foundation of who they are didn't you say there was a third scholar that you were going to plug that's her it's her plugging her again. wait was that three? Oh yeah, yeah. okay Hold on. let yeah. me just get it. let me just pull it up because it's very i mean she talks about it in the book so again this is why I say do your readings because you heard it, folks. That's your homework. Mm-hmm. That's three books. I think maybe Cotton's book is probably the most accessible if you're trying to, I guess, do a fast read for whatever reason. Well, uh, I want to return uh, to this like notion of like universities as generating profit for themselves, for their owners, or whatever at the expense of education. And something that has come up in this current pandemic is a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty like you talked about, but then universities charging the same amount for tuition. And one interesting thing that has happened, I think, is so there was an article, I think it was about UN Chapel Hill charging like like yeah, UNC Chapel Hill basically saying like they were going to be open, like everyone's going to be on campus and then as soon as 
the tuition had been paid, they switched to online only. Well, it wasn't just as soon as the tuition had been paid, to be honest. It also, there were many outbreaks with like super quickly and within the span of like less than a week. But again, I think so. I mean, you can look online for this whole drama. You can just Google, you know, UNC to follow. The students have been doing, as we know, students have been doing really great work covering this, but also pushing back against it, organizing and, and, and sharing and explaining to the public and giving them insight into what the experience is like for them, including if you go on Twitter, you can find probably all over the place at this point, um, one student who did test positive, she was asymptomatic, but tested positive for COVID. And you, she gave an insight into how they were treating it and her. I think that's interesting. But just looking at the whole conversation about UNC's response before, after, during, yes, to your point about still, you know, charging full tuition and then leaving students high and dry, you know, once they close down, basically it's just a redo, but if not worse, probably worse than March in the sense that the students, it, the semester didn't start with all this anxiety and everything. And so probably a complex story there, but I bring it up because I was talking to somebody here in Massachusetts. Um, this woman, um, she was telling me about her son in college. I was like, oh, where does he go? And she was saying, well, he was going to go to this college in Vermont. And as I brought up this story of like maybe like a little bit of the conspiracy of our universities doing this on purpose. And she said she was about to send her, her kid up to Vermont because he's a cross-country uh, athlete. Um, he wanted to live on campus. And this Vermont university was saying, yeah, we're going to be full open. Cross-country schedule is going to be going to be good. So reserve your your place in the housing and send the tuition. And she was about to send the tuition, but she was like, wait, you know what? Let me just wait a couple weeks. And sure enough, um, shortly after they had said, we're going to be open, cross-country is going to be good. And then everyone paid their tuition. Students started moving up there. All sports got canceled. They were going online only. And if you lived on campus, you weren't allowed to like go anywhere. So she realized like, okay, we're, I'm not going to send my kid to this school and pay the exact same price that I would as if it was fully open. I'll, he can just do online anywhere in the country, whatever the good deal is. Yeah, I think it's, again, I think it's, this is why I think this, every more people need to be involved in this conversation, regardless of if they are directly affected or currently involved in you know, high red or things like that. It's it's because it has it also has to do with, you know, state funding. Public schools are public for a reason, right? I want to talk about sports. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because well what this discussion reminds me of, I went to school in the South. I mean, I went to college in the South. And being up here in Massachusetts and New England, it's very stark the difference of how what a university is to people because obviously in new england it's all about professional football when it comes to sports you know the patriots patriots are king but in the south college football is king oh my gosh Super you look up king. those numbers the numbers on the, are the, the money the money that's is generated insane. like during football season is insane and, and i was a part of that I, was <laughs> yeah. part, I went to university of georgia one like you want to talk about a, a group of people who are excited about college football? I mean, that campus goes insane. It's it's absolutely crazy. But and sports is enjoyable. I mean, it's entertainment. It is enjoyable. People who play it, they do like to play. They enjoy playing it. It's usually all the politics and 
the otherwise that can make them perhaps some question if they enjoy it. But we some people enjoy playing it. We enjoy watching it, you know, so that makes sense. But but the thing is, I'm thinking about like the students who are like playing the sports because this was a discussion uh, when I was in school, like, should we pay the students, the student athletes or not? And it's like very clearly a racket. I mean, all the athletes at University of Georgia, when they come in, they're, they're like all given free scooters and like there's all these types of amenities they're trying, you know, the school throws out to try and incentivize the players. And the school is obviously making millions of dollars. I mean, the the football coach himself, he was making a million dollars a year. He had like a sponsorship with Ford trucks. So like he would be on like commercials and stuff in front of a Ford truck and who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars he'd make for that. But the students themselves don't make a single dime. And as we know, football is one of the most damaging sports there is to a body. Like, I mean, the average career, if you look at the average career of the NFL player base, it's just three years and three quarters of them go broke after just a couple of years of retirement. Most of the players are getting beat up and they're not even lasting because they're so damaged from it. And that applies to college football. And I'm wondering how this is playing out with the pandemic where everyone's demanding sports. And at least when you have a professional sports team, they are putting themselves at risk to play. But you could argue, well, at least they're making some money. How does that apply to a college student who's risking I mean, their lives? To, to be honest, like everything that we talk about, everything, everything, it's not depressing. It just comes back to the fact that people need to be paid and, and given their worth. And or I mean, we just it just we can't continue to enjoy people are demanding. OK, let me just say this. People are demanding sports because sports is entertainment. Sports is feel good. Sports is supposed to be non-political, right? Sports is supposed to be the space where everyone can come together. And even though we don't I may not like the person sitting behind me for whatever reason, we can still enjoy those that are down there, you know, competing against each other. Which on its own is fine, but the reality is we can't continue to enjoy these things in the ways that we have been enjoying it because they've been exploitative. You know, it's just the models are they they cannot continue to work. And how is that structure right now? These people get all of this money, and then the rest of you either depending on if you're playing in college, where you there's just this complex of you we you, they shouldn't be paid because they're quote unquote students, or what what does it say if we provide them? you know, all this money or if we allow them to get money from Nike from promoting their goods. You know, I haven't been keeping up with whatever the new reason why we shouldn't pay student athletes. But the reality, I don't to me, I believe if this is going to be such a money generating industry like it is, you need to pay them and pay them well. I don't agree with the notion of don't pay them because quote unquote education comes first because that's not how they're being treated. They are being treated commodities like ponds like things that can be pro bodies that can be profited off of and in that sense they're grown folks if they decide that they want their life to be a center around football then that's fine who cares if they want to do one year in university or three we have told them that to get to the nfl you have to go to college and play for one of these teams so that you can be recruited when i um i just this just reminds me of a a personal experience. One of my in my one of my earliest jobs, I worked at a copy store, and I would meet all different types of people that had 
um, shipping needs or whatever. We had mailboxes at this store. So I developed a relationship with quite a few different people. And one was this um, football recruiter guy. He would train and recruit people from the high school to college level. So he would go to high school games and do all the scouting and, you know, write information down about them. He would work with the parents. He would work with the schools to get people offers for universities before they were even, depending on their talent, before they were even, um, you know, a junior in high school. But even beyond that, it goes, it starts at the, at the level, they start recruiting kids to this day at the age of four, five, and six, which has its own, it's all just really, so he, in addition to this, he also had this like summer camp he would do where he would train five-year-olds, six-year-olds to, 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 to play in the little leagues, which then they would play to get them ready for middle school to, it's all, it's a pipeline, right? Just almost like there's a prison you know, a school to prison pipeline. There's also a school to sport. pipeline. Yeah. There's, there's a, it's a huge pipeline. And not only that, I mean, most of the people, some of the people who participate are not wealthy or who want their, whose kids enjoy the sport and would like to do it because they enjoy it or whose parents want them to get into it. You know, it costs a lot of money. I also, I used to, after that job, I worked at a sporting goods store um, where I just saw, you know, every, you know, the cycles of, oh, it's fall time or summertime. I need to buy all this gear, you know, because at, you know, in the early years, you're not attached to a school. So it's all the money is coming from your pocket. You got to buy the helmet. You got to buy the pads. You got to buy this. You got to buy that. You got to buy this. And it easily adds up to well over a thousand and then well over a thousand dollars for the equipment. But then there's fees for the club. But then if you really want to be good, you need to hire someone like that guy that's going to give your child that extra training and during the heat of the day, which is also not safe. I know we've all heard our fair share of stories about, you know, um, young athletes passing out from dehydration. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm thinking about, at least when I'm thinking about sports at the university level in general, but especially within the pandemic, because you have, there have been college athletes that have tried to collectively come together and say, we're not going to play under these circumstances, but we also know the silencing, the very brutal and honestly, I would say violent silencing of voices as it relates to players trying to assert their, their rights and their political values or values in general. Yeah. I, I, maybe this is a discussion for another time, but I, I just think what's really stands out to me about the, the this conversation about sports is, you know, American society is, at its core about like individualism or at least that's the kind of narrative crafted by white society is that we are individuals we we make our own lives we, our success and our failures ride off of our choices as individuals and the quintessential individualistic story is found in sports it's like the hero you know the the who triumphs above all uh, opposition to to get the final score or whatever like Athletes are treated in this very individualistic way, and that brings a lot of a lot of interesting issues. Where, on the one hand, the the really superstar athletes are making a lot of money, and people use that as a way to silence them when it comes to their views on politics or whatever. It's like you know, who are you to complain about anything in society when you're making a million dollars a year or tens of millions of dollars a year? But it's also used, you know, I feel like that the individual athlete is also given the criticism for not giving back to their communities or 
you know, we highlight the foundations that superstar athletes like LeBron or, or Magic Johnson create to give back to their communities. But at the end of the day, what you're talking about, this is an extraction from a community that begins very young, that preys on people who are very, poor, yeah. who mm-hmm. is that's mm-hmm. giving families who are disadvantaged this illusion that their child can be great if they spend all this money and all this energy and resources. And at the end of the day, who's making the most money? It's the owners, it's the universities, it's the sports clubs who are preying off of all of this, and they're not giving back to the community. Like the owners of NFL teams, the the, the college administrators. But even if I want to just say, because because we could say this, and then you know the the response could be, okay, well, fine, you know, we'll start to we'll do a little a backpack, we'll do a backpack program, and you know the owners could say, okay, well, we'll do a backpack program, we'll start giving back. Mm. But I think you know this conversation has taken so many detours and whatever and just it kind of just hints to how complex all this is but i think um what would it look like for a community supported like sports model Mm. like what would that really look like and i'm not talking about um what's those things that they do i'm not talking about like um like farm csas no, no, no. Like, I'm not talking you pay, about you pay um, a share and you get to watch. Like, what's the th- inter- I'm not talking about like var like inner. What do you call varsity? What do you call those things? JV varsity. No, no. They're like um, intramurals. I'm not talking about intramural sports. Oh, like where like a bunch of like yeah. neighbors get together I mean, and play ultimate. Like, what frisbee. does it look like for let's say the Chicago Bulls to really be owned? And I think there's some kind really be owned by Chicago or like what is it? What would I don't even know. So I'm just throwing this out there. I don't even know what I'm. I don't even know what this would imply. What this looks like. But what would a community supported model of of sports look like? You know, would would it be? Can we envision? Can we really fashion a model that's fun, that's enjoyable, that's fair, that's equitable, that's not anti blackness, that's not anti black, that's not um, repressive. That's not that doesn't seek to silence voices that doesn't seek to extract, but that also allows for, um, you know, healthy competition, not just in the community, but outside of it. That also allows for professional because it is. I mean, I, I really love the ways that athletes cultivate their profession. It is a profession and I respect that. But I'm very interested to see what it would mean for them to really get the pay that they deserve from our because we enjoy them like we enjoy their their play so how can they really get that due respect that pay but also how can it not be extract extractive i mean just i just i don't know it never sits right with me to see some just really rich white person who just has the money to just buy a whole team or any rich person who just has the money to buy a team and that's just what like they manage everything like i just it's just it's just a lot for me yeah yeah (laughs) Well, Michael Bennett, uh, NFL player, wrote a book. I don't remember. It's called something like uh, uh, White People, This Will Make You Uncomfortable, something like that. But he was an NFL player, and he talks about that in his book, about how a lot of professional sports is kind of, uh, it's a very colonial, almost like slave-owning model of like, they don't allow a lot of, or any black athletes or black people to be part of the upper management of these teams that are primarily black and coming from primarily black communities and yeah it's i think it's really strange to see a fully black team and then you get this like old white guy with like his fucking glasses on and he's like 
you know, I own this team and, you know, my strategy for how their image and it's, it's, it's sick. Anyway, this is a long departure from school. I'm sure you have a lot of schooling to do. I mean, I wish, I mean, there was so much that as you like so much, I want to talk about that. I didn't even get to get into like, you know, assessment and learning what that looks like now, but you know, on the bright side, the good parts of questioning assessment and learning, I mean, the academy itself and, you know, not to definitely not to um, discredit or um, not to discredit any of the advances or works that educational specialists and curriculum developers are doing right now. But I think they all would agree as they have on uh, 1A, which actually I thought it was a good episode about 1A, the podcast. Yes. About what assessment looks like, how to really assess learning, how to really test. I am a creative person. And like I said, I'm also a child of educators. I've been an educator myself for two years. I teach now and I am a big believer in allowing students to demonstrate understanding in different ways. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, that is, to be honest, to me, that's the mark of understanding is being able to um, express it, not just in a rote, from rote memory or from a multiple choice test, but through creation, through creating, through creative writing and things of that nature. So that's something I didn't get to talk about. I'm just plugging this for perhaps maybe a part two. Um, Really looking at teachers protesting in unions because teachers are under a lot right now. And some teachers, a lot of teachers, some teachers who haven't been fired already are being made to prove their worthiness in the wake of budget cuts, which goes to something I didn't fully um, explore, which is the state funding and for, for public school systems. And this is why I think the nice white parents is just something interesting to listen to. Podcast. Yes. Very infuriating, but something interesting to look at because it really delves into fundraising. So this um, is like a podcast on like, the everyone probably the has heard of it. I mean, it's been trending for quite some time. I, I resisted listening to it for so long because I'm like, do I really want to listen to a white reporter talk about white, <laughs> like white parents and fucking, New York City, but it it does bring back for anyone who went to a public school and remembers those PTA meetings that parents were encouraged to attend. It does talk about that. So those are things we didn't talk about um, that would be... Well, let's save it for part two. Good to talk about. Thank you for having me on the show and letting me just fill out just everything that's going on in my head. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. We'll have all those plug books on the website and the show notes so check it out please buy them if you can afford it um those books support pirate it and send the author a direct check yeah i guess i don't know how that works Uh, i don't know how i don't know how you do that um but just i think they will say buy their book buy those books if you can and you have the money to support black thinkers black scholars who are scholar activists and who are not just producing knowledge for the sake of, of producing it, but are actually working to put forth the change that we need. Well, thank you, Mariah. You're welcome. So that, that was an interesting conversation with Mariah King, talking about her experience. And David, I know you're hearing it from the, for the very first time right here live on this episode. Right in everyone's phone or computer. I am listening live for the first time. That's correct, yes. Well, there was one thing I did want to clarify 
though, Daniel. Um, I can't help myself. This is one of the only sports facts that I really like. And Mariah there was talking about, uh, could we imagine what community ownership in professional sports would look like? And there actually is one team out of all the major leagues, you know, baseball, hockey, uh, football, whatever. There is, there is, I should say basketball too, baseball, hockey, football, basketball, you know, all of this stuff. There is one single team that in fact is a community owned team, uh, um, which is pretty cool. You want to uh, guess? Cool, cool Runnings. No, that's a that's a fictional bobsled movie. Oh, it was close though. It's yeah. it's Green Bay, uh, the Green Bay Packers. Oh, the they football are, team. Yeah, the football team. The the green you know cheesehead people up there in Green Bay, and that's actually the reason why Green Bay, who's this teeny tiny town no one's ever heard of, somehow still has a professional football team, despite you know these other major cities not really having one. And it's because way back in 1923 they set up this team as a community-owned team. There's like something like 200,000 shares, and there's all these stipulations where you can't own more than like 4% of the entire team. And it, it's it's really genuinely community-owned. If a team is ever sold, all the, the profits go back to the community. Uh, it, it also, they set up this big charity that a lot of the profits from the team, because the team is a nonprofit, so all the excess profits are returned, in fact, to the community through these charities and programs. And it really is actually a model a representation that you can have a profitable football team in this professional league that uh, you know is able to return things to the community, or it would be anyway if the NFL hadn't explicitly made laws preventing another thing being set up in this way. So this is the only team that's allowed in the entire NFL to be community owned. The NFL actually set up rules that you can't have more than like thirty something owners, and uh, somebody has to have at least own a minimum of 30% of the team because they specifically don't want to see community-owned nonprofit teams like this, which is pretty fucked up. But, you know, what else is new? So the basically what you're saying is the exception proves the rule that we were talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you're, like, you're like, well, actually, there is a community-owned team, but the no. NFL made it illegal <laughs> because they only yeah. want billionaires to own the players. I mean, that's that's fair enough. But I, I do want to point out, we don't have to imagine this. Like, it is possible, and it is a successful model. It's one of the most successful models, actually, in this entire program. The team hasn't gone bankrupt. They're still one of the most beloved teams with the most devoted fan bases. So it is better. But, you know, <laughs> these larger market forces say, oh, we can't have more of that. We got to privatize these profits. We can't let communities well, be part of this. It's kind of like we can imagine land reform for peasants. You know, we, we there are examples <laughs> of that, you know democratically elected leaders in South America step forward to say, hey, what, the peasants should own the land that they work. You, you, that, we can imagine that. And then those leaders get assassinated by the CIA and a, a despotic ruler is in place by you know, Western powers to prevent that. So I guess it's Woo. just good that that hasn't happened to the Green Bay Packers. You know, yeah, keep keep it, it alive. It takes a long time to assassinate you know, the entire population in Green Bay, but I wouldn't put it past the NFL. If, if anyone could do it. I bet there's like a, a desk in the FBI where like there's an agent, like that's his one job is like the it's Green Bay Packer operation. Sabotage them. He's like, well, if we can't uh, make them a, a billionaire owned team, we can at least sabotage their Super Bowl wins for forever. That's that's the reason. <laughs> well, I don't want to dwell on this interview. And here's where I want to proceed, because I, I don't really have much to add to what Mariah was talking about. Like I said, I just want to go to an essay by Wendell Berry, because 
it's interesting. You know, he he's writing a lot of his essays are coming from the seventies or eighties, mm-hmm. um, in some of his seminal essays. And it's it's interesting hearing his perspective as for those of you who do not know who Wendell Berry is, he's a small farmer in Kentucky. And he's known he, he's famous for what he writes about the agrarian mindset, being an agrarian, um, living off the land, living in community. He's very skeptical, uh, so to say of the modern world, the technology that surrounds us, the infrastructure we've created, the displacement uh, of ourselves from each other and, and from communities, the industrial agriculture. He's, he's very outspoken against these things, but more than just being outspoken, he comes from real lived experience of rural community and farm living. And he offers so much wisdom for us. And one of his essays actually kind of touches on universities and their connection and relationship to agriculture in the United States. So what do you think, David? Should, should I just start reading from it and we'll discuss it as we go? Well, anytime you start saying root causes, I'm entirely on board. So yeah, let's, let's get to this. All right. Everyone grab your tea, have a sit down, grab a plate of cheese, and let's dive into economy. You can't and- say grab a plate of cheese. That's, that's, that's uh, not vegan. Grab a plate of um, olives and... Radishes? Olive oil. I love radishes. Radishes? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, you like dip them in stuff, eat them raw, they're good. All right, we're not going to tell you what to eat. We're not going to tell you what to drink. Just whatever, whatever's going to put you in that state of mind, um, that relaxed, open book kind of state of mind where you're just going to absorb... Maybe like a, a good pickle. <laughs> the pickle state of mind. All right. Here we go. Economy and Pleasure by Wendell Berry, 1987. I'm reading excerpts, by the way, not the whole thing. To those who still uphold the traditions of religious and political thought that influenced the shaping of our society and the founding of our government, it is astonishing and, of course, discouraging to see economics now elevated to the position of ultimate justifier and explainer of all the affairs of our daily life, and competition enshrined as the sovereign principle and ideal of economics. As thousands of small farms and small local businesses of all kinds falter and fail under the effects of adverse economic policies or live under the threat of what we complacently call scientific progress, the economist sits in the calm of professorial tenure and government subsidy commenting and explaining for the illumination of the press and the general public. If those who fail happen to be fellow humans, neighbors, children of God, and citizens of the Republic, all that is outside the purview of the economist. As the farmers go under, as communities lose their economic supports, as all of rural America sits as if condemned in the shadow of the free market and so-called revolutionary science, the economist announces pontifically to the press that there will be some winners and some losers, as if that might justify and clarify everything or anything. The sciences, one gathers, mindlessly serve economics, and the humanities defer abjectly to the sciences. All assume, apparently, that we are in the grip of the determination of economic laws that are the laws of the universe. You know what this reminds me of, David? So when he says the sciences um, mindlessly serve economics, two thoughts come to mind. We've talked about that conference I went to 
uh, remember. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I think it was at Harvard. I just happened to like uh, like sneak into this conference that was about um, technology and the social sciences. And it was Uber. I think Facebook was there, but don't quote me on that. Basically, like big tech companies trying to recruit anthropologists and other social scientists while also like having this convening around like privacy and data and how so important that we understand culture and communities and people so that we, I don't know, it's nonsensical to me. Basically, basically Uber and Facebook are trying to buy social sciences to open up new markets for their technology while trying to explain that, oh, we value security and privacy and we would never harm human people. Yeah. Okay. It well, and it reminds me of that because social sciences are usually like the the type of academics we think are outside of pure economic pursuits, right? They're supposed to be critiquers of society. They're supposed to be outside of corporate interests. But here I was at this conference watching as corporate interests are literally uh, shaking hands and like promising jobs to social sciences. Well, sure. I mean, like when we hear sciences now, we're thinking like STEM, like science, technology, engineering, and math, which absolutely are definitely in the service of greater economics as a whole. But uh, you're right in that the entire like liberal education system at this point is beholden to the, the larger economic forces that reside in our society, right? So like I have degrees, um, my degrees are in journalism technically, but like they're film degrees, right? And uh, in theory, I should be out making film art and stuff, but the vast majority of what I'm making and what my peers are making on their day-to-day jobs and spend the vast majority of their time creating are advertisements, um, things that are basically completely part of the service to the larger economy as a whole and generate no wealth or value or anything of artistic merit or any, anything worth actually spending time learning about for, for everyone else. It's just vapid. It's just empty. Um, most of the writers I know are now copywriters and advertisement agencies. Uh, the people who studied psychology end up HR. Everyone who at some point was trying to get some sort of, of actual artistic or liberal education is now in service of these greater economic forces. And um, I have some thoughts about how this is sort of the privatization of the larger public institutions that we like to consider publicly funded universities, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. So the, the other thing it reminds me of, David, is we did an episode many, many years ago, months ago, last year maybe, um, episode 20, Irresistible, which we should talk about this more, David, because this episode was specifically on super pathogens. Yeah, we were right. We were super right. We actually predicted COVID 2020. We predicted that. Yeah, if you don't believe that, listen to that whole episode. Yeah, you'll find it in there. And all, and all the other episodes. If you're three quarters of the way and you haven't heard us predict, just keep listening. Make it to the end. All the way till the end. And then uh, you'll have to unlock the puzzle game. There's Easter eggs hidden. But so I just want to set the stage for this episode. We were researching antimicrobial uh, resistant pathogens. So these are bacteria or viruses that have evolved to resist the medicine that we create to destroy them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we started learning about this topic called yeah. zoonotic diseases, which are uh, diseases that arise from our basically massive animal industries around the world, yeah. which ultimately probably was what uh, this current batch of coronavirus is. And I think we talk about how industrial agriculture and factory farming is, is like contributing to this and probably the next spot where we're going to have pathogens, right, mm-hmm. and pandemics. And so what we did is we said, well, let's talk to some scientists. Let's you know, I had a connection at the University of Georgia, and we talked to three very fine, very educated, 
um, great scientists who are doing very important work in mm-hmm. um, medicine for livestock, so beef, cattle, and also just studying like antimicrobial resistance. These are veterinary uh, medicine uh, PhD scientists, and they're all doing great work. But I, I have to admit, I was disillusioned a little bit, right? Because I was thinking, okay, yeah. here are these scientists. We're going to go, we're say, hey, we're researching these antimicrobial resistant pathogens. What, what are you doing to combat this, right? And they'd say, thank God someone's <laughs> talking about this. There's so much we can do to, to fend off this like looming disaster that's, that's coming. But that's not exactly what they said. No, and, and it's no fault to them. It's, it's the, where they get their grants. So the guy who studies uh, beef cattle, like a lot of his grants come from companies that mm-hmm. produce... Uh, the cattle industry itself. Yeah, the cattle industry, who are, who are trying to figure out, hey, I've got a thousand cows. How do I prevent them from getting sick? So doing research on better technology, better medicine, better like feeding methods to aid this process of cattle slaughtering or, or raising cattle in, in a very industrial way. Yeah, it's, it's never a perspective of how can we prevent these pathogens for the, the welfare of the animal or how can we prevent them from ultimately being a, a danger to all of humanity. It's how can we do this to uh, best enhance the economics of these large-scale cattle operations? Right. And then, and then so we asked somebody else, like, what are we going to do? And the kind of answer was, well, I think the specific question was, what are we going to do about like factory farming pigs, you know, which are a hot spot for zoonotic diseases? And the response was, we'll look at the projection of population growth. Now, don't you think all those people need to eat? We need to feed the world. The response was, we have to produce the food. We have to factory farm the pigs. So the best we can do is try to get better medicine. When that's not the root cause, the root cause is the factory farming in the first place. And mm-hmm. any type of drug you try to like throw in there is not only contributing to the rise of these antimicrobial resistant pathogens, but it's not addressing the fact that it's the factory farming in the first place. And for those of you who do want to fact check us there, it's episode 20, Irresistible once again. Right. So like, I'm not trying to say that these scientists are not doing good work. I'm just pointing out that in our university system, we're not always looking at root causes. We're trying to produce research that will aid current technology and the pursuits of that current technology, yeah. regardless of if the product of that technology is destruction of human civilization. As, as mentioned repeatedly, it's, it's, somebody has to pay the bills. So if the federal government's going to do that, it's going to have to do it for some economic reason. They have to show return on investments. And if the private industry is going to do that, well, it's the same exact thing. There is no science for the sake of science. There is no science for the sake of a better world. It's science, ultimately, for economic gain. And we hope that those causes align, but so frequently they do not. Uh, Let me return to the essay by Wendell Berry. It seems that we have been reduced almost to a state of absolute economics in which people and all other creatures and things may be considered purely as economic units or integers of production, and in which a human being may be dealt with, as John Ruskin put it, merely as a covetous machine. And the voices bitterest to hear are those saying that all this destructive work of mindless genius, money, and power is regrettable but cannot be helped. So that's actually what we were just talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's kind of what they were saying. It's like, well, it's it sucks that factory farming is destroying the world, but you know, that's regrettable and we're just going to have to do the best we can. Back to the essay. 
But let us suppose that a remedy is possible. If so, perhaps the best beginning would be in understanding the falseness and silliness of the economic ideal of competition, which is destructive both of nature and of human nature because it is untrue to both. The- mom, mom, mom. Sorry to interrupt you here. Uh, you can't badmouth competition, Daniel. That sounds like communism. As we all know, competition is the cornerstone bedrock of God-given American capitalism. So, I just want to let you know that my, my comedy detectors are on. You're on thin ice. I'm on thin ice. Well, David, those are scary words you're throwing out here. Communism, capitalism. Just don't think in terms of these abstract economic systems. Just think of, you know, think in terms of like, like you're sitting at a, at a table as a child and there's only five apples on the table, but there's six kids, but one kid takes all the apples. That would be unfair, right? Um, I don't know. What if that kid, like, earned those apples? Good point. I think I'm going to have to turn to Wendell Berry for some more wisdom here. He goes on to say, The ideal of competition always implies, and in fact requires, that any community must be divided into a class of winners and a class of losers. This division is radically different from other social divisions that of the more able and the less able, or that of the richer and the poorer, or even that of the rulers and the ruled. In fact, the defenders of the ideal of competition have never known what to do with or for the losers. The losers simply accumulate in human dumps like stores of industrial waste until they gain enough misery and strength to overpower the winners. And um, so I just want to point, like, we talked about this a long time ago, David, but I think the idea of competition, it, he's right that it's so enshrined in mm-hmm. our economic thought that we don't really get past the word itself to think about the fact that competition exists in many different ways, right? Uh, uh, competition in a sports arena is not the same thing as competition for land, ownership, or uh, accumulation of wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Because the idea of competition as we know it has kind of just been reduced to the context of profits, right? This is like the the foundation of American individualism and like our economy is you compete for profits and that somehow orders the entire world. I would go even a step farther, Daniel, where I would suggest that the concept of competition is such a sacred tenant of, of the American experience and the larger neoliberal or capitalist experience in the world today that it's not even considered it's 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 the word doesn't mean anything like if you say competition you don't dwell on what that word actually means at all because it doesn't mean anything it's just a placeholder for this idea that because of this fact you know this system that is this economic system that we're all beholden to is something that is innately justified in that the people who win at it win because you know they deserved it and also that uh it inherently increases efficiencies and stuff uh, but when you actually get into it, like you're pointing out, when you actually think about what this word means rather than like the the, the specter of what they just want you to assume when you read it, um, it all like totally falls apart. And, you know, there's winners, there's losers. And the fact of the matter is most of us are losers. And even the people who win are still losers um, in the long term. And we'll get to that and we'll very get to that. But I don't think it's even a real word anymore. Like competition is not a real word. It's just a, like a simulacrum of a of a idea that like this should not be touched this is inherently something that is positive don't think about it any harder 
it's become a weapon to defend any any form of our economic system. And I think he, he kind of explains the differences here well later on in the essay. I want to read that now. Quote, that there is pleasure in competition is not to be doubted. We know from childhood that winning is fun, but we probably begin to grow up when we begin to sympathize with the loser. That is, when we begin to understand that competition involves costs as well as benefits. Sometimes, perhaps, as in the most innocent games, the benefits are all to the winner and the costs all to the loser. But when the competition is more serious, when the stakes are higher and greater power is used, then we know that the winner's shares in the cost, sometimes disastrously. In war, for example, even the winner is a loser. And this is equally true of our present economy. In unlimited economic competition, the winners are losers. That they may appear to be winners is owning only to their temporary ability to charge their costs to other people or to nature. But a victory over community or nature can be won only at everybody's cost. We now have in the United States many landscapes that have been defeated temporarily or permanently by strip mining, by clear cutting, by poisoning, by bad farming, or by various styles of development that have subjugated their sites entirely to human purposes. These landscapes have been defeated for the benefit of what are assumed to be victorious landscapes, that is, the suburban housing developments and the places of amusement of the winners, so far the winners in the economy. But those victorious landscapes and their human inhabitants are already paying the cost of their defeat of other landscapes, in air and water pollution, overcrowding, inflated prices, and various diseases of body and mind. Eventually, the cost will be paid in scarcity or want of necessary goods. It's funny, too, David, that he talks about um, the competition on our earth. The winners destroy the earth and the spoils of their competition is suburban housing developments. Which is funny because last week we talked about this a little bit, right? In, in cities and, and rural divides and suburban like gated communities. And he's talking about how even these winners are losers and the fact that the earth is destroyed and there's water pollution. But we also talked about how like suburban communities are losers and the fact that their communities are terrible and they've lost connection to one another and they're scared of everything because people usually move to the suburbs because they think urban environments and diverse environments bring nothing but crime, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of white people fleeing black communities, for example. And we're all worse off for it. We're we're all as a society worse off for this this winning. We're doing so we're doing so much winning. I'm just, I'm so tired of winning. We are tired of winning, aren't we? I'm so tired all the time, Daniel. <laughs> tired of everything. So there's more stuff on competition. He talks about like uh, how it's meant to involve a winner and loser, and that the human economy is pitted without limit against nature. But he also goes on to say. It is a fact that the destruction of life is a part of the daily business of economic competition as now practiced. If one person is willing to take another's property or to accept another's ruin as a normal result of economic enterprise, then they are willing to destroy that other person's life as it is and as it desires to be. That this person's biological existence has been spared seems merely incidental. It was spared because it was not worth anything. But there is another implication in the limitlessness of the ideal of competition that is politically even more ominous. Namely, 
that unlimited economic competitiveness proposes an unlimited concentration of economic power. Nowhere, I believe, has this grossly oversimplified version of economics made itself more at home than in the land-grant universities. The colleges of agriculture, for example, having presided over the now nearly completed destruction of their constituency, that is the farm people and the farm communities, are now scrambling to ally themselves more firmly than ever, not with the rural home and rural life that were and are their trust, but with the technocratic aims and corporate interests that are destroying the rural home and rural life. I was curious, David, um, mm. about when he says that this is really bad in the land-grant university system. And I guess, you know, going back to that episode 20, Irresistible, that's what we were dealing with was an agricultural college. And he's basically saying these agricultural colleges don't aim themselves with farming and farmers and rural life, but with corporate interests. But um, what is a land-grant university anyway? Oh, friend, you've activated my history trap card. So um, oh, no. I'm just going to give you a little bit here. And I, I could get really into this. It's a, it's a fascinating topic, one steeped in blood and uh, betrayal, as, as all good history is. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to give like a very simplified sort of stripped down version that's pertinent to the conversation that we're having right now in terms of Wendell Berry's essay, but also to some of the topics that Mariah King was discussing earlier in this episode with you, leaving me out. But um, to really start this- You didn't get the invitation? I did not get the invitation. To, to really start this land-grant uh, description, maybe I should just explain what it is. So there's, I'm not even actually sure how many universities, so I'm starting off real weak here, but there's, I don't know, maybe like 100 universities. Over 100. Uh, that are land-grant uh, schools in this country. Uh, they were created over uh, a couple different acts at different periods. The most recent one happening in 2001, I think, uh, but that was only really limited to uh, Native American land-grant universities. But uh, this all started way back during the Civil War in 1862, but I think to really start this story, you have to jump back slightly before, which is Around the mid-1850s, uh, there was suddenly this, this push uh, across the United States for, hey, we need some universities that are teaching agriculture. This is a time of great revolution, uh, industrial revolution. This is an idea that uh, we are going to mechanize, we're going to automate, we're going to improve uh, the way that we do everything. Whether it's uh, you know, building cities, whether it's uh, building weapons, which you know, led up to the Civil War, or if it's rethinking how we're doing agriculture. And obviously, this was something that was really pursued, especially in the North at this time, because the idea that we're going to create a new way of doing agriculture that's more uh, mechanical, that's smarter, that's more efficient, was obviously an attack on the very labor-heavy slavery of the Southern vision of what agriculture should be, where you have vast amounts of free labor working for you because they're held there against their will, and you're able to turn that into very valuable goods. But the North doesn't have slavery. So they say, well, how can we get around this? Let's revolutionize about how we think about agriculture. So the very idea that we should have these universities in the first place teaching agriculture is based you know, on, on what was initially sort of seen as combating slavery. I don't want to, to call it combating racism because the North at this time was, was still super racist. 
uh, just like it is today. But uh, definitely fighting slavery was part of it. So the South pushed up against this and, and really no development happened along here until halfway through the Civil War in 1862 when uh, Justin Smith Morrill, who first proposed this a couple years before, uh, created something called the, the Morrill Land Grant Acts. And this was passed in 1862, signed into law by Abraham Lincoln. And what this did was basically gave every senator and representative in the United States 30,000 acres of quote-unquote public land. This was unused land, and I'll talk about that in a second. Unused land that didn't belong to anybody, and uh, they gave them to uh, each state in, in proportion to the number of senators and representatives under the guidance that this must be used in order to either fund existing universities or create new ones. And these universities had to meet a couple different uh, requirements. So one, this endowment had to be kept for forever. Um, at least in the baseline, you could profit off of it, invest that, take that money and invest it in your school, but you can never basically come back under this amount. And this is true still to today. And uh, two, you had to teach a very specific thing. And I have actually this law uh, pulled up in front of me because it's still in action today. In fact, some universities have lost their uh, status as a land-grant university. Others have, have gained them, um, lost and gained, and also just you know gained for the first time. So I'm going to read this old-timey law. Provided that the money so invested or loaned shall constitute a perpetual fund, the capital of which shall remain forever undiminished, except so far as may be provided in section 305, and the interest of which shall be inviolably appropriated by each state, which may take and claim the benefit of this subchapter to the endowment, support, and maintenance of at least one college, where the leading object shall be, without excluding other scientific and classical studies, including military tactics, to teach such branches of learning as are related to agriculture and the mechanic arts. Blah, blah, blah. So what this was doing was creating universities designed to basically be the STEM universities of their day. So uh, this was about how can we create agricultural science? How can we create engineering? And also how can we, we create military science in universities and how can we fund this program um, basically in perpetuity? So the idea was let's take all this land that suddenly we have out in the Western parts of the United States, approximate that up, turn it into script, give it to uh, states in the East, give it to the West, every state had it, and uh, use that to fund these universities that already exist or uh, are created in this purpose. And so um, it worked. Uh, this was a huge boon to these universities. It generated millions of dollars at the current time, which is worth, and I did the math here, something like half a billion dollars in today, uh, which doesn't sound a lot based on current university um, revenues, but it was much more impactful at the time. So, I mean, this was huge. And a lot of these universities still today control tens of thousands of acres based on this original land grant action 150 years ago. But Daniel, wow. you asked me, where did this uh, land come from? Where did the, the United States government get tens of thousands, millions of acres of land? Oh, that's easy. Oh. It, it was bestowed by the manifest destiny that was written in the stars, <laughs> um, prophesizing the coming of America since the dawn of time. Uh, yeah, something like that. I mean, that's definitely what they saw at the time. Um, but so this is where we start getting into the dirty history of, of this stuff. This uh, millions of acres of land was the culmination of, of 40 plus years of uh, the, the systematic extermination and relocation of the Native American tribes spread out across the United States, pushing them off the most valuable, the most productive, and their ancestral lands into the least 
valuable, least productive, and most unwanted parts of the country um, in ever smaller and smaller increments until, you know, suddenly we had millions and millions of acres that need to be distributed. So this Moral Land Grant Act is uh, part of a three-prong redistribution of this land. There was also the Homestead Act, which gave lots of people, you know, 160 acres of free land if they would go move out west. They were trying to get rid of people up in the crowded northern cities. So they said, get out of here. We'll give you free land. Go spread American ideas of Christian of Christianity, of, of, of uh, economic success. Um, this also really bothered the South. They hated that because uh, they didn't like small farms that were manageable by a couple people. They wanted giant plantations where you needed huge amounts of slaves and labor to do it. So they were pissed off about that. But also it was a huge amount of land given to railroad companies in order to further spread the economic mind of the United States throughout this, this place, but also uh, spread those same ideas of, of, of um, Christianity, of Western ideals. And then ultimately, the universities are the third prong of that attack where we have these what are seen as godless lands. How can we bring culture and education and, and the Western idea of, of um, enlightenment to these uh, godless people and these godless places? You know, basically a systematic destruction of, uh, of the indigenous people throughout the United States on a physical level where we steal their land on a uh, secondary physical level where we steal their land and then also put a bunch of armed people all over the land trying to defend what they see as their new farms. And then on a cultural level where how can we completely wipe out the ideas of, you know, these natural cultures that were here for hundreds, thousands of years with the Western religion, with the Western traditions, et cetera. And um, this is just a small part of the larger uh, forces to eradicate Native American uh, people and culture which went all the way to like just straight up abducting children and putting them in boarding schools and, and teaching them basically how to be white. I mean, all that aside, uh, this was a huge, 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 huge um, detriment to tons and tons of Native Americans who are still obviously and very validly um, upset about this through today. And it, it's a very clever act, I think, by the United States because no one is going to say, oh yeah, the creation of these institutions of education was a bad thing. And I mean, it was because you're stealing land mm -hmm. and, and, and consequently people's way of life, people's ability to survive. You're basically condemning people to death just by saying your life is worthless. Get the fuck out of here. If you want to participate in this, you need to reeducate and become a different person. But as like an individual biological unit, I don't give a fuck about you, which is actually something Wendell Berry writes about in this same essay. But uh, where was I going? with? So uh Universities today have have admitted, yeah, okay, you know, this was a tragedy, but the economic, the enlightenment value that we've created in this process sort of outweighs that. Um, we're gonna we're gonna publish a statement, and a lot of these schools actually have it like on the front of their website where they're like, we acknowledge that University of Georgia is a land grant university, and uh, this is formerly built on occupied land, whatever. But that's usually where these sort of things end, and no actual effort to make amends or do anything be besides like acknowledge the fact that you're on occupied land or you're profiting from occupied land out in the West that is held in trust is done. Actually, David, I want to read from the history of the University of Georgia as it's written on their website. And I'm doing this in the post edit so you can't argue back with me. But the University of Georgia writes that in uh, the, the scholars from the first graduating class of 1804 immediately created a culture of leadership for the state and public service became ingrained, blah, blah, blah. And the university's public service and outreach endeavors deepened throughout the 19th century. 
UGA became a land-grant institution in 1872 under the Montreal Act. Um, blah, blah, blah. And this led directly to outreach programs like the Statewide Cooperative Extension Service, formal governmental training and education, and the establishment of the Innovative Service Initiatives managed by the Office of Vice President for blah, blah, blah. And at the very end of all this history, it says, From their historic beginnings, UGA's public service programs have expanded and diversified to keep pace with economic, social, and cultural changes in the state. Work that adds millions of dollars each year to the Georgia economy. As a land-grant university, UGA has a formal responsibility to utilize its personnel and resources to improve life in Georgia. As an institution dedicated to public service and outreach, UGA stands poised to extend its tradition of service in the 21st century and beyond. No mention of anything that you're talking um, There are no like programs for actually providing say, tuition, uh, free tuition to uh, Native Americans. Um, a lot of schools have introduced Native American classes or Native American student center or whatever. But when it comes to actually like putting your money where your mouth is and saying, yeah, well, we're sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for our legacy. So let me actually just educate you our purpose, ostensibly, for free. No, that's off the table. Um, which is fucking ridiculous. But, you know, what do you expect from the university system here in this country? But uh, the other part of this, Daniel, is, is like it's a huge sort of oligarchical exchange of land and profit disguised as a philanthropic effort by the United States government. And so if, if we look for a second at, at the USSR, when the USSR collapsed, right? And, uh, due to, um, uh, our, our settling of the moon, specifically what kicked yeah. off the collapse of the Soviet Union, something like that. So, well, as the USSR collapsed, uh, Western consulting firms rushed into the country in order to help divvy up the formerly state owned, collectively owned industries into the hands of private industry, right? So the Goldman Sachs, um, all these, these, these bankers, they were out there saying, how can we help, quote unquote, ease the transition into capitalism when really it was about how can we divvy up the goods? And so uh, this is the development of what we now call the Russian oligarchs, um, because that's a term you only use when you're not an American, even though, you know, Jeff Bezos, oligarch, Bill Gates, oligarch, but Elon Musk, oligarch. But, you know, we don't use those words. That's a that's an unfair word for Americans for some fucking reason. So as they're divvying up, you know, the, the gas companies, the mineral rights for all this land, they're selling these companies on pennies on the dollar what they're actually worth, just giving them away uh, to their friends, to their family, in order to basically create this huge amount of wealth for these people who are friends and literal parts of the government that have the capability to do this. So then we say, well, what happened to the millions of acres? that were sold as part of this program that ultimately funded these endowments for the universities in the, at least these, the sections where um, the schools didn't occupy all the land that was given to them. Remember these schools are getting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres at, at, and sometimes millions of acres, almost a million acres were given to New York and some was sold, some was kept, but most of these were sold for basically nothing. So like, for example, in um, Pennsylvania, I think, there were only three people who came in and bought the hundreds of thousands of acres that the state was assigned. And they were buying them for about 40 cents per acre, which I did the math once again, that amount is about $10 an acre today. And even for the time, it was considered like a ridiculously low deal. Um, Cornell, the man, not the school, 
bought hundreds of thousands or millions of acres for 85 cents on average per acre. And then he turned around years later and sold them for over $5 per acre. And he gave that money to Cornell University to act as their endowment, which is that that's why that school is what it is today. So even though school is benefiting from this, the private individuals involved in this program are benefiting even more. And it was sort of like a a wolf in sheep's clothing to one, attack all these Native Americans and two, cause this huge amount of capital to flow to already wealthy Americans mm-hmm. in order to uh, to make sure that it's not just about flowing back into the universities, at least they would have the initial endowment, but the fact that they knew they were selling these for well under market value meant that this was about a massive transfer of wealth from not just the the natives that they stole it from, but from the people of America that stole it collectively on behalf, that the United States government stole collectively on behalf of, um, but instead to the, the moneyed interests and, and people in power who control the United States who passed this act and who were the industrialists of the age. So top to bottom, everyone gets fucked here. And so what are we left with today, Daniel? You know, a hundred and something land-grant universities, um, true, many of the historical black colleges and universities in the United States are recipients of these funds. There was a, a secondary program in 1890 that instead of giving them land, gave direct cash grants. Um, another one in 1994. Um, and there's been a couple like minor things in the middle. But it's been since the beginning just a huge flow of wealth from from all of us, from Native Americans, instead into very small institutions and individuals. And then the point that I think you're trying to get me to get to here, which is that the whole reason for this was about creating universities bent on economic remuneration for the investment put on them. So if I'm a university, I can't just be about liberal arts anymore. Specifically, I have to be putting time, effort, energy, money into uh, agriculture, engineering, science, uh, the stem of the day. And then these same ideas had carried over through today where we started seeing universities not as educational institutions for the sake of being a well-rounded renaissance person or whatever like term you want to use, but rather as economic motivators. How can we take this, and this is something explicitly said, how can we create a new educated class to further fuel the industrial revolution? And that same idea is carried today. How can we create a new educated class to further push the information revolution, right? You could have said that 20 years ago about MIT or something. And this is all happening. How can we create a new educated class in order to uh, push the business revolution? How can we train all these MBAs in order to further the economic dominance of the United States or of the small corporations that exist there. And then on top of that, this is, I think, a major shift, the beginning of the major shift of seeing university as a public good. Where Remember, these are all public universities, publicly funded by the federal government, by state governments, etc. And they were previous to this point about creating people who are knowledgeable so that they could take their knowledge and return it to their communities, return it to the country as a whole. But now that we're trying to specifically educate people in a way that it increases their economic output, that increases the economic output of the school, of the state, and of the nation, we are effectively taking this public education and privatizing it, taking the value that we instill in an individual and telling them that their only use for that is to invest it into private industry to make somebody wealthy on their behalf. And that really, I think, is the legacy of these types of ideas where how can we take a public institution and let it remain a public institution because people don't want to privatize all these universities. There's a lot of pushback. And there were private universities at the time, like William & Mary, 
which is now a public institution after it went bankrupt in 1888 because, you know, it couldn't compete with this kind of stuff. Well, well, this is it. You know, this is how you turn a public university into a private good, even though, uh, you know, we have plenty of privately funded, um, you know, for-profit universities now that disproportionately uh, take advantage of, of poor and minorities. But even these, these actual <laughs> uh, public universities are still about concentrating money, not in, in, in everybody's hands, but rather funneling it up to the top privatizing the education, the skills that you receive on a semi-publicly funded thing, you know, and not even to get into tuition fees, not even to get into student fees, not even get into the exploding costs of universities, not even getting into the way the universities are increasingly not spending money on education, but are spending them on amenities, on administrative fees, on marketing, on advertising, on sports teams, etc. How schooling is, is less about the actual schooling and about everything else that is more profitable than that. And I think part of that is because they realize the actual act of schooling an individual, of teaching them, is not profitable to that institution itself, but rather, again, to this private industry. So it's sort of biting itself in the back where now these schools, because they're not profiting themselves, have had to like figure out ways to make money on top of this. Um, you know, everything's come home and, and everything is terrible all the time, which I think is 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 the running theme of everything. But uh, that's my that's my brief lesson on how uh, stealing a bunch of land from Native Americans destroyed the world. Well, I mean, one of the many ways that stealing a land, bunch of land from Native Americans is destroying the world. I guess it's a lot of different ways, but that's one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> land grant universities. There it is. There it is, folks. Yeah. Shout out. Both Daniel and I went to a land grant university and the Funny side story here, Daniel. Um, so we went to University of Georgia, and University of Georgia is one of the original land grant universities. And even before it was a federal land grant university, it's one of the original state charter universities. Um, it considers itself the oldest public university in the United States, which is a claim made by three other schools. Um, they're all sort of right, so I don't want to disagree with it, it technicalities. But um, I always thought it was weird. In the middle of campus, there's this building that says like University of Georgia Academy of Military Sciences. And I was like, why does this school have a military science program? There are other military schools in Georgia. Um, you know, the school had like an ROTC and, and you could get a degree in military science. I always thought it was super weird. It felt out of place with the rest of it because the school is supposed to be an agricultural school because of this land grant act. Well, if you remember that part I read from the bill um, saying that it must include military tactics in order to maintain its position as a land grant university. Suddenly it clicked and I said, Oh, this is why this university 150 years after this bill was passed is still teaching military science, even though it's doing a super shit job at it because it's just doing so as like a check, like a technicality checking a, uh, a box off on this bureaucratic form that to maintain my position as a land grant act, I have to have a military science program. And so now there's like, well, that exists there. Super weird. Um, well, that's super interesting. Thank you for uh, researching that for us, David. It, Sorry about the ramble. Well, you said there's only like 100 or so, but it, this really kickstarted the whole university system in the United States, it sounds like. I mean, University of Georgia, I know, like officially began in the 1700s and this land grant program began in like the mid 1800s. Well, the charter was like 1796, but I think first class was like 1801. Okay, so this land grant program came like a couple decades after mm -hmm. the, like universities had been around, but 
in terms of really shaping how universities would be structured going forward, uh, it sounds like this really defined American education because the ideal is for students to get to university, which means every school before that, primary, high school, middle school, is preparing students to fit that model. And with, and with everyone expecting that type of education, that means universities that aren't land-grant universities are still going to model those same programs because students want to say, hey, can I get the same jobs from your college that I can get from this other college? So this imperative that universities be little uh, sites of production for future uh, industrial workers is incredible. That That's the legacy that is carried forward to today. There's a couple more things uh, in here from Wendell Berry that we can expand on this, David. So I'm going to keep reading. Quote, agriculture, it turns out, is to be served strictly according to the rules of competitive economics. The aim is to make farmers more competitive and to make American agriculture more competitive. Against whom, we must ask, are our farmers and our agriculture to be made more competitive? And we must answer because we know against other farmers at home and abroad. Now, if the colleges of agriculture serve agri... Well, hold up. Let me back up for one second because that would explain something, David, that we've covered Mm. on many of our agricultural shows, which is that farming is a terrible position. It's a terrible profession in terms of quality of life. Most farmers are impoverished, especially if you're talking about the small farmers, right? We have... Sorry to bust everyone's homestead dreams but that shit is hard work and you're probably going to end up bankrupt well you're only going to end up bankrupt because you can't afford to pay your land taxes or you can't afford to buy the land or if you do you have to take out a bank loan and and you can't afford to compete against the people exactly who are doing so at an industrial scale and making their whole system of agriculture effective because they're effectively borrowing against the future and the future sustainability of that land and the entire human race so, it, yeah, they're taking profits from the future and uh, putting that in into their, their prices right now so that you can't ever compete if you're trying to be sustainable. So you have to, like, market yourself separately where, oh, this is sustainable food. And there's been a lot of success on that, but uh, the whole system is rigged against you. It is. It's completely rigged. And it's also why farmers um, have some of the highest rates of suicide of any profession. Mm-hmm. almost around the world, because this is a model that has been replicated across many countries. Exactly. And the system that is rigging these these industrial-scale farms against you is these agricultural universities from the Land-Grant Act. Like, that's, that's the, the whole nice circle where this all ties back together. The fact that these actions years ago are now dooming us today because of this need to create this competition, like you're talking about, like, like Wendell Berry is talking about, means that we are forever trapped here uh, in, in this like circle of doom. And it goes without saying, we're talking about agriculture because Wendell Berry is the agriculture man. He's the king of this, of the, of this perspective. We don't, we don't like kings here. He's the esteemed uh, philosopher. He's, yeah. King is the wrong word. But Obviously, this, this type of thinking, this economic model of education extends to most every other college and, and uh, curriculum involved, especially with these land-grant universities. But to your point, he writes in the next sentence, quote, Now, if the colleges of agriculture serve agriculture by helping farmers to compete against one another, 
What do they propose to do to help the farmers who have been outcompeted? Well, those people are not farmers anymore, and therefore are of no concern to the academic servants of agriculture. And so the colleges of agriculture, entrusted though they are to serve the rural home and rural life, give themselves over to a hysterical rhetoric of change, the future, the frontiers of modern science, competition, the competitive edge, the cutting edge, early adoption, and the like, as if there is nothing worth learning from the past and nothing worth preserving in the present. I want to pause there um, because this stuck out to me, you know, not learning from the past, not learning from the present. And I, I think it was really good, David. I appreciate you pointing out that the the war against slavery was not necessarily certainly not a war against racism. I think that's a really important distinction. I've never heard it phrased that way, and I think it's really good because it's always bothered me how people refer to the Civil War as like, oh yeah, the North was fighting the South because they hated slavery, and it's like implied that the North was like doing this great altruistic thing, you know, to like save save slaves from the oppressive slave owner in the South when I just don't think that's true at all, right? I mean, this was about economics. It was about power. 100% not. It was about control. And, and don't get me wrong. There definitely was like a philosophical basis where a lot of people believed that uh, no one should be enslaved. And that's fair. Um, but they also believed that black people were inferior. And they also believed that sl- enslavement is fine as long as somebody is paid for it, et cetera. Well, it's probably like in the same way, like I drive through really rich towns in Massachusetts and you see like there's a particular town I'm thinking of, Concord, where every single house has a Black Lives Matter sign and they're all mansions and they're all like Mm -hmm. fenced off with like uh, hedges and stuff. And there's not a single black person to be seen because it's a rich town that white people have like gentrified. So it kind of like this idea i think appeals to like this liberal mindset of like oh yeah i want to be known as a good person like i'm definitely anti-slavery but you know the racism is still perpetuated uh in perpetuity but you know this this that this idea that universities don't honor the past or preserve knowledge they appropriate knowledge there's also this common narrative about agricultural production in the south which is that you had slave owners and they were bad but they directed these slaves to produce all this food and they generated all this economic activity. And what gets left out of the narrative is all the knowledge, all the, the skills that were brought by slaves, by, by stolen people um, to the Americas. And there's a book on this very topic. It's called um, Black Rice, The African Origins of Rice Cultivation in the Americas by uh, Judith Carney. And she explores the fact that, like, for instance, in South Carolina, during the days of slavery, South Carolina was known for uh, rice, and rice was like its biggest profit margin item. It was a huge exporter of this South Carolina rice, mm-hmm. and that rice was brought over by black women who braided it into their hair to preserve their history, their heritage, their agricultural practices. And they were the ones that knew how to cultivate it. And it was the slave owners who had no idea how to produce anything in these harsh environments. And they relied on these stolen people to teach them. And that's where, I mean, so much of the, the, the crops that were produced in the, the south of North America 
and uh, the eastern countries of, of South America, across like the tropics, so much of, of the legacy of those crops were cultivated by, brought over by, by slaves who, who carried forward their generations of, of knowledge, thousands of years of practices. And that history has been wiped out, especially by these agricultural colleges that just teach the modern science. Mm-hmm. As an aside, uh, the history of rice and the Carolinas and slavery is, is super fascinating. Um, and uh, you don't realize how much slave rebellions and resistance there was because that history is just never even taught. History in terms of slavery is taught. It was here and it was bad. And then the North fought a war and they freed the slaves. And thank you, Abraham Lincoln. But uh, the actual people who were enslaved themselves have you know hundreds of years of history of, of fighting back, of, of fighting for their freedom, of creating communities of freed slaves. Um, that's really fascinating, and it has almost never been told. There's a great book on it that I have that's called Dixie Be Damned, 300 Years of Insurrection in the American South by Neil Shirley and Sarah Lee Stafford. And it has um, a couple chapters that talk about these Carolina Maroons, which are what the uh, the word for these communities of escaped slaves. Um, and a lot of them center around uh, this rice cultivation. It's a really fascinating history, and um, it's, it's, it's a tragedy that's not told more. But I think it's also a sort of uh, inherent racism in the way that we, we talk about the history of slavery and, and you know, the white man coming in and, and saving the day, signing the proclamation that ultimately didn't really do much. But uh, I'm getting pretty far off topic. I haven't heard of Dixie Beat Damned. I'll put it on my list. But I do know that this hit, uh, so-called discovery by these um, botanists and, and the author of Black Rice, that I guess the proof of, of this original cultivation of so many crops by slaves actually comes from uh, maroon communities that are still, some of them still vibrant to this day. Yeah, they still there. Who learned how to be, or who were self-sufficient because of their great knowledge of cultivating, not just the crops that they had brought over, but mm-hmm. in, in transferring their knowledge and their memories to the new environments and the jungles that they found themselves in. Yeah, and, and language. There's still a lot of unique languages in those areas. Super fascinating history. Well, speaking about passing down knowledge, Wendell Berry goes on to write, The idea of the teacher and scholar as one called upon to preserve and pass on a common cultural and natural birthright has been almost entirely replaced by the idea of the teacher and scholar as a developer of quote-unquote human capital and a bestower of economic advantage. The ambition is to make the university an economic resource in a competition for wealth and power that is local, national, and global. Of course, all this works directly against the rural home and rural life because it works directly against community. <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, finish this essay very soon um, with this paragraph. A community cannot survive under the rule of competition. But the land-grant universities in espousing the economic determinism of the industrialists, have caught themselves in a logical absurdity that they may finally discover to be dangerous to themselves. If competitiveness is the economic norm and the competitive edge the only recognized social goal, then how can these institutions justify public support? Why, in other words, should the public be willing to permit a corporation to profit privately from research that has been subsidized publicly. 
Why should not the industries be required to afford their own research? And why should not the laws of competition and the free market, if indeed they perform as advertised, enable industries to do their own research a great deal more cheaply than the universities can do it? You know, it kind of goes back to our our episode 75, Business School. Uh, When we're talking about a lot of the things we're talking about now, David, but, you know, how you were talking about public versus private research, and with everything being this competitive landscape and, and this economic imperative, it pits universities against one another. And so now they're competing against one another, not to produce like the greatest uh, public service, but they're competing for funds. They're competing to be recognized for federal support so that they can sustain themselves, but also tuition fees. And that's why we find ourselves in that situation that I talked about with, with Mariah about how universities are almost defrauding students of their tuition payments in this remote learning landscape because of the pandemic, because we as a nation do not support universities as a public good. We support them insofar as they can compete to generate economic profit in the form of cheap labor for our uh, industrialist corporate overlords. And uh, that's bad. (laughs) The end. Um. So there's one more essay that Wendell Berry wrote. He wrote another essay called A Remarkable Man, which is kind of a book review on a book that came out in the same year. And the book is is an autobiography by this man named Nate Shaw. He's a black farmer who was born in Alabama in 1885. He's an individual who overcame much adversity in his life, as you can imagine, of a black farmer in Alabama in the 1800s. And, and this white guy came around and interviewed him. He, he, he recorded 120 hours of this guy, Nate Shaw, speaking about his life at the age of 85. And then this white guy wrote, wrote it down, edited it. And it's an incredible life. But Wendell Berry in his essay, A Remarkable Man, talks about it and kind of contextualizes this man's life from an agrarian perspective. Because as he points out, the white guy who wrote this book or edited it didn't really know anything about farming. He didn't really know anything about the agrarian lifestyle. And he is a, you know, we'll say a university educated person. And that carries uh, some baggage with it. But what's interesting is that this, this man, Nate Shaw, who lived this remarkable life, was not educated himself. Even though he was a genius at farming and he was able to advance his, himself in life, he had this kind of insecurity, you might say, about the lack of education. Wendell Berry writes that. His lack of education obviously nags at him, forcing him to suspect that his farmer's life was his limitation. When he says, my boyhood days was my hiding place. I didn't have no right to no education, whatever. I was handicapped and handicapped like a dog. Wendell Berry goes on to say that a powerful superstition of modern life is that people and conditions are improved inevitably by education. The purpose of education with us, like the purpose of society with us, has been and is to get away from the small farm, indeed from the small everything. The purpose of education has been to prepare people to take their places in an industrial society. The assumption being that all small economic units are obsolete, and the superstition of education assumes that this place in society is up. Up is the direction from small to big. Education is the way up. The popular aim of education is to put everybody on top, 
Well, I think I hardly need to document the consequent pushing and trampling and kicking in the face. And maybe he goes on, I'm paraphrasing, that if Nate Shaw had been educated, rather than, you know, being a well-educated small farmer, he might have just been a completely different human being, uh, for better or for worse. And he goes on to say that this, this man, Nate Shaw, burdens us with his character, not just with his testimony or with his actions, but with his character in the fullest possible sense of that word. Here is a superior man who never went to school. What a trial that ought to be for us, whose public falsehoods Betrayals of trust, aggressions, injustices, and imminent catastrophes are now almost exclusively the work of the college bred. What a trial, in fact, that is for us, and how guilty it proves us. We think it ordinary to spend 12 or 16 or 20 years of a person's life and many thousands of public dollars on education, and not a dime or a thought on character. Of course, it is preposterous to suppose that character could be cultivated by any sort of public program. Persons of character are not public products. They are made by local cultures, local responsibilities. And that we have so few such persons does not suggest that we ought to start character workshops in the schools. It does suggest that up may be the wrong direction. And the fact, uh, he ends the essay by basically saying like that the, the editor of this book basically doesn't realize a lot of the agricultural terms that Nate Shaw uses, and he like misspells it all, and is like, oh, he uses all these words that aren't even in the dictionary. And then Wendell Berry's like, actually, <laughs> actually, these are words that, like, if he was a farmer, he would know these words. But this is this is the crossroads we're at that we're losing people like this. We're losing this history because of the college bred, I guess, who just they don't understand life from the lived experience and this 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 departure from community, this departure from local living is robbing us not just of these people and their histories, but of our own ability to, I don't know, experience this world uh, maybe as it should be. That's a bold statement, I guess, though. Well, Daniel, some people, I guess, they say, you know, like, what if the universe that we're living in is a simulation, right? And they think to themselves that uh, you know, a simulation means that, you know, we're like a, a computer program running on this galactic supercomputer or whatever. And, then, and it, we're not, nothing's real. Um, whatever, you know, those people are idiots. And whether it's true or whether it's not, it doesn't fucking matter. So, you know, fuck off, Elon Musk. But in another sense, we really are living in a simulation. And um, I think for a lot of people, the experience of the world isn't something that's lived. Uh, it's not something that we experience. It's something that we read about and imagine. And we read about it through other people's words and we read about it through other people's explanations. And something's lost in that process, right? And so in our head, we think we know what it's like. We think we know these things, but they're just sort of shadows of what the actual truth is, a simulation. And, and, and in the process, our whole experience of everything is really boiled down to that because how much do you. Do you personally really know how much have you actually experienced? How much can you say in your heart that you know it's true? Not something that's learned, not something that's read, not another experience that you've watched a video from or read a text about or whatever, but your actual experience, which is the only thing you can know for sure. The rest, honestly, is just some level of simulation, something you built up in your head with other people's words and lives. And 
something's lost in that process, just like you're talking about here, just like Wendell Berry's talking about here. And most of our society, most of our experience is this. So I guess, you know, the, the, the point of this is get out there and live that life. And this doesn't mean you have to travel the world and be a wandering vagabond, but it does mean like if you want to understand these experiences, if you want to understand the individual, if you want to understand community, that's something you have to go out and do. The actions that we talk about, the philosophies on this show, aren't just intellectual processes. They're not something that we talk about and, oh yeah, people should do this, or look at all this knowledge we've acquired, blah, blah. These are just the stepping stones to activating the actual actions in your life so that you can start living these better worlds we talk about. David Graeber passed away this past week, and I think he would, he would agree with a lot of what Wendell Berry wrote. I don't know if he ever read him or talked about him, but I think he would sympathize with the fact that anthropology so frequently, and David was an anthropologist, is used to serve the status quo, is used to serve power, just like you were talking about with that conference, Daniel. But David always fought against that, and he always encouraged experiencing these things yourself and activating what you think you know, the lessons that you learn, the philosophy that you read, the ideologies that you believe in, in your everyday life, and actually making those thoughts into, act, into actions. And you know, ultimately, that's what the university system, the education system should be about. How can we take these things that we teach and actually turn it into something good, actionable, good? And uh, you know, that's been lost somewhere along the way because it says, how can we take this and turn it into profit? And it's a tragedy, but we don't have to live this way. We're not bound by these laws and the world is something that we collectively create. And if enough of us start creating a better world, then, you know, that's a good step in that process. And I want to, I want to read my own Wendell Berry quote here, Daniel, but instead of droning on for 10 minutes at a time, I have just one single line for you. Uh, this is from that first essay that we were reading. Um, Rats and roaches live by competition under the laws of supply and demand. It is the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. Powerful. Food for thought. David, that's powerful. That, that really resonated with me, what you're talking about with the simulation. Because I do feel like my life, my own life, is not lived fully. And I, I, want, I want to make it a goal, you know, to, to get to live less in the simulation, live less in the words of others and more in direct experience. My only regret is that no one has made it this far in the episode to hear that powerful quote that you just read. <laughs> well, those of you who toughed it out, I hope it resonates with you. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a lot to think about, though. As always, Daniel, but think about it and do something about it. We hope you will. But in the meantime, if you want to learn more about the topics we talked about today, read a full transcript of this episode that will eventually be up on the website, as well as see all those books, essays, and other material that we mentioned. You can find all that and much more on our website, ashesashes.org. A lot of time, research, and thought goes into making these episodes, and we will never use advertising to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can reach out and support us by giving us a review or recommending us to a friend or carrying these conversations forward to your friends, associates, and family. You can also let us know by email at contact at ashesashes.org 
If you think we should keep going, hey, if you reach out to us, send us an email. We read it. We appreciate it. We love it. We're so excited to do all of these episodes. And our favorite part is hearing from you. (laughs) There are lots of ways to reach us besides this email, though, Daniel. One, we've got a phone number that I think probably still works. And you can leave us a message at 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. We listen to those voicemails. Someday we'll do something cool with them. But we really just love hearing all y'all's voices, your stories. People have called us about all sorts of things. And uh, they're each one a little bit of a treasure. We are also on every social media you can imagine we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Reddit, all at Ashes Ashes Cast. Come check us out. We might be on the Collapse subreddit soon, so keep your eyes peeled for that once we get our schedules figured out. We are also broadcasting live. Yes, that's right, live. You can come join Daniel, me, and our Twitch co-host, Anthony every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time uh, where we uh, shoot the shit about all sorts of stuff. We have people from all over the world join us. We talk about uh, all sorts of things brought up with the audience and the topics. It's a lot of fun. So we hope you'll join us for that. You can also support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Ashes Ashes We really appreciate it. That wraps us up for this week. We have another episode coming, not this next week, but probably the week after. We hope you will tune in for that. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Goodbye.